Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. And I'm Stuntman Levi. Stuntman Levi. Vroom, vroom. The movie we watched this week was Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, give me your rip-roaring review of this Grindhouse movie. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Now this movie is is kind of universally panned as one of as Quentin Tarantino's worst movie, which it's still a good movie. It's right, just it has that unfortunate nature of being Quentin Tarantino's worst movie. So, <laughs> yeah, I think this is better than a lot of movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But when we line it up in the chronology of of Tarantino, I of do Tarantino. think it it takes kind of a backseat and i think it's i think he gets super nostalgic in this one yeah i mean it's hard for me to parse this movie because there are things that he does in the film that are paying homage to the grindhouse movies of his childhood things like bad editing bad cuts you know weird uh, effects (laughs) um probably my favorite one was when the sheriffs were walking through the hospital and they walked through the same hallway twice. It was like this funny little thing of like, they walk down this hallway, turn left, and then they cut to them walking through the doors at the end of the hallway. It was basically them saying that like, the hospital was not big enough to shoot this whole scene. So they just made, tried <laughs> to make it look bigger by shooting. that hallway. Yeah, by shooting in the same hallway twice. So stuff like that, you know. So you have to try to differentiate those two things. Because we're we're trying to see Tarantino and his filmmaking prowess, but he's also trying to make this movie bad in some ways. Yeah, it's so. it's a hard tightrope, I think, that mm-hmm. he walks. And I think he does a good job. I think the the writing, as always, is pretty good. I think it needs more editing. I think you could take it back down by thirty minutes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that you parse it up because so i ended up i know last week i said i was gonna try and watch like the planet terror grindhouse Mm -hmm. like together but i there's no easy way to get a hold of those two in a single format so i ended up watching the full length grind uh death proof yeah and and death proof the theatrical version or the version that you can rent on amazon which is where i got it uh, that version is longer than the death proof that showed in the in the double feature. Just want to touch on that real quick, just so uh, everybody's up to speed. Grindhouse was released as a double feature with uh, that Quentin Tarantino co-produced with Robert Rodriguez. So Robert Rodriguez directed a movie called Planet Terror, and Quentin Tarantino directed this movie, Death Proof, and they showed them as two. Uh, back-to-back uh, double feature movies in the in the movie theater. I remember going and seeing these movies in the movie theaters. 2007, I was in college at the time. I went by myself. I bought myself a large bucket of popcorn. <laughs> and I went to the theater. And on my right side, I put my jacket. And on the left side, I put the bucket <laughs> of popcorn in the seat next to me. And I ate it. And then uh, during the intermission, because there was an intermission, I went and got another bucket of popcorn. <laughs> I think I've only ever been to a movie by myself once. Oh, it is I magical. I saw Moonlight, uh, Wes Anderson's Moonlight Kingdom. It felt weird. And I, Moonrise Kingdom. What did I say? Moonlight. Moonrise. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, anyways, I do. I remember it in theaters as well. And I remember at the time being like, even at that age, being like, Okay, I get it because mm-hmm. they did the right like real missing, and then you cut in <laughs> in what feels like the middle of a moment, and you feel yeah. like you're missing a lot of information. And I remember at the time being kind of annoyed, and so I'm glad that that's gone. But I forgot how long the restaurant scene drags <laughs> on, and just there's a lot of extraneous stuff, and I think that it could have been kept to. 
a more tense. I think that's the problem with Tarantino is that he loves his dialogue, yeah. but the tension feels so weird. It does. It's really push and pull. You look at a movie like Kill Bill Volume 1, that movie clocks in at 100 minutes. I think this movie easily could have clocked in at 100 minutes. I think it easily could have clocked in at 90 minutes, which I feel like would have been a more of a grindhouse cinema experience because I don't think that those movies were like two hours long. Yeah, they didn't have the budget for two-hour movies. Yeah. And, you know, back in the day, like whatever happened to the two-hour or the 90-minute the movie? Like back in the day in the 90s, 90-minute movies were all the rage. And then I guess Lord, I think Lord of the Rings kind of ruined it for everybody. (laughs) Like, you know, 90 to 100 minutes, perfect movie length, and then everything went to two and a half hours as a movie. Hateful Eight's going to be, what, three and a half with an intermission? It's over three hours, yeah, and it will have an intermission. But I'm okay with that. Like, uh, you know, Quintarantino, he's you know uh um uh pulp fiction is two and a half hours long and that movie flies by so as long as and i i think django and chain's also like two and a half hours long um i'm i'm okay with the length on the movie it just it should it should warrant its length and i'm not sure if death proof warrants its length yeah and i think it for what it was supposed to be Mm -hmm. as a grindhouse double feature yeah I just think that they both, instead of kind of writing with that restriction, they both made their movie types. You know, Planet yeah. Terror is very much a Robert Rodriguez movie. They made them, <laughs> they cut them down till they fit, and then they smashed them together instead of kind of starting with the shorter restriction. Well, and and in in the cinema experience, in the double feature grindhouse experience, in both movies, there was a scene that was cut out that said, like, real not found. Um, and that wasn't available in the, the Death Proof rented version. But I believe it was during, and this is just going off straight memory here, because I haven't seen this movie since I watched the double feature in the theater in 2007. But I believe it was when the lap dance scene started. Then it, like, cut to this real not found section. And that was what was cut down. Yeah, um, I think you're correct. And I think they added the... Him stalking um, the other girls at the start of hmm. basically the second half of the movie. The second, yeah. When he's doing the feet touching thing. Oh, God, that's so creepy. So creepy. And I think he could have I think he could have cut off a ton of the front, the mm. first half. Yes. Basically, you know, cut it to him at the to them at the bar, and you're I think you've saved a ton of time and Dude. kind of the drag. I 100% agree with that. I would love to just dive into these two halves of this movie. Because the way that I see it, Death Proof is a double feature in itself. It's it's almost what you were talking about last week with Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2. The first half is the world building, and then the second half is like the real story. Um, And I see this movie in that light. They're very two distinct halves with two very distinct set of characters motivations and also the first half of the movie which is when he which ends with the gruesome car accident um i guess it's not an accident uh (laughs) it the first half of the movie pays homage to the grindhouse films and i feel that the second half of the movie is the tarantino movie the first half is tribute the second half is just straight up tarantino um in so many ways uh but that first half of the movie, so so let me ask you because I think we both feel like the movie dragged a little bit. What was the what was the draggiest part of of the movie to you? I think we spend so much time with the first set of girls, so much character building, mm-hmm. and then they just get knocked off. Yeah, which would be fine if it had been because I see it. You know, you're talking about the two halves as two separate movies. Yeah, you know, a lot of horror movies kind of follow that similar trope where it's like, you know, the the mm-hmm. murder kind of the murder really gets away with it in the first film, and then in a follow up film like, and I haven't actually seen that many of these horror films, but you know, I know that like <laughs> Dream Warriors isn't that the movie where Freddy Krueger where they kind of take the fight to him? Um, <laughs> I don't know about Dream Warriors, but. But one you know, of your I favorite movies is technically one of these slasher horror movie 
in that vein, but it's wrapped up in a sci-fi wrapping, which is Alien, which is in very much the same way. It's They have the whole setup at the beginning of the movie where we get to know everybody, and then the alien shows up. Uh, it follows that similar, you know, um, that similar plot plot line that that most horror films follow. Yeah, and I think the only thing I think the problem is is that it's just that opening is so much to just kill off and to basically kind of toss that away. Yeah, I think you can show that in a shorter time frame, and I think a lot of classic slasher films do like ah here's your big (laughs) gruesome moment now let's go to who's who's going into the final showdown yeah i i agree with you and i had a really hard time with the tarantino dialogue hanging on these kids there was there there are instances where tarantino's dialogue sings and when quentin turn or when um, samuel l jackson says anything that quentin tarantino writes it sings Basically, any part of uh, Pulp Fiction sings. Reservoir Dogs sings. Uh, I think it gets into trouble when there are actors or characters that aren't suited to the dialogue. And I felt like at the beginning of this movie, most of the characters were not suited to the dialogue because they weren't. I feel like you got to be a little bit afraid of the character in order for the dialogue to work. <laughs> um and I wasn't afraid of any of these people. Like, they were kind of annoying to me. <laughs> and I know that they, and I don't know, maybe it's just because, like, I'm a 30-year-old guy at this point. Um, and it's a lot different for me now at this point in my life than it was when I was 22 years old. But, uh, but like, the people at the beginning of the movie are not very interesting. And they you know, even Eli Roth's character, like, nobody at the beginning of the movie, <laughs> like, struck me as very interesting until... Uh, until stuntman Mike shows up, like well, and, Kurt Russell can make the dialogue sing. Maybe that's what was a little dissatisfying. Is typically in slashers, like the annoying people definitely get their comeuppance. Yeah, and Eli yeah. Roth does not bite it. He doesn't get like sideswiped as stuntman Mike leaves the parking lot. <laughs> he doesn't get anything. He's just here's this guy. He's an asshole in my film. Let's go back to the characters now. I like to think that Eli Roth's character was the guy on the motorcycle at the end of the movie who randomly crashes into the barn. <laughs> Did you see, when they pull out to the interstate, there's just this random scene where a motorcycle guy crashes. I like to think that was Eli. That's a good good theory. Um, yeah. do you do you agree do you apply your statement about the dialogue not fitting to both mm-hmm. sets? I mean, let's talk about there's the no. group in the first half and the group in the second. And I think the group in the second half, yeah. I think it worked. The group in the first yeah. half, it did not. I 100% agree with you. And I think that the main thing that makes the dialogue work is the character development. Because the people, the the ladies in the second half of the movie have lives. They have interests. They have careers. They have, you know, they're talking about guys, but they also have a lot of other shit going on. They like cars and they have interests. At the beginning of the movie, they're basically just walking around talking about partying and like trying to pick up dudes. And it's the 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 development of those characters, it's like I don't really care a lot about any of these people. The second half of the movie I cared about these people because they were fleshed out. I mean, even small things like uh like the actress who's I think her name was Lee, uh, you know, putting on the earbuds and singing. Like that is to me, it says more about her character than, uh, you know, the the plethora of the ladies at the be- at the beginning of uh, at the bar getting up and dancing to all the songs. I don't know. I it's just like the characters didn't land with me in the first half of the movie, and they totally landed with me in the second half. Yeah, but, I would. It's the right the writing process in this one. I mm-hmm. I'm curious as to what you know. It's I I'm. Flustered because it's one of the first where it's difficult to track. Usually you can see where Tarantino is going, yeah. but was his intent just to make you uninterested in the first half? So when they die, you're like, ha ha, they got it, those ditzy broads. No, I, I think that the, I mean, it's it's still awful. And I feel like it doesn't, the second half of the movie doesn't work unless the first half of the movie, unless Stuntman Mike is an, is is built up as a formidable almost unstoppable evil force in the first half of the movie. 
And I think that's why the car crash is so graphic and violent. Because uh, in the second half of the movie, you have no sympathy for this guy. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, 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 want, I want to talk about the crash a little bit later. But, you know, I feel like they were just trying to kind of set up, and Tarantino was just in the first half of the movie, just tr- trying to set up kind of that slasher movie trope of, hey, it's girls' night out, we're having fun, we're like young people, we're getting into trouble, we're making out with each other, and then the monster comes and shows up and starts slashing. Like, I I think that's what he was trying to set up at the beginning of the movie. But the dialogue, I don't know if he can write, I don't know if his, his dialogue doesn't sing in that situation. It's it's just not as interesting to me. Um, the only thing we know about any of the characters is that one of them is a radio DJ. And that's pretty much all we know. <laughs> one of them has a cabin, one of them has a radio DJ. They have, like, no interests or anything except for drinking and going out and dancing like i'm like uh, i I don't want to spend an hour with these characters if if this is all the development we're going to get with them so i think that was my main qualm with the movie i think is is the first half uh and i really like the second half so let's talk let's talk about the restaurant scene because this scene has been brought up multiple times it's the draggiest scene in the movie and I actually really liked it, <laughs> so I, I might be in the minority here. But what was your interpretation of the of the restaurant scene? Are you talking about the restaurant in the at the top of the second half? Yeah, in the diner. I think it's a chance to introduce us to Zoe Bell as Zoe Bell, mm-hmm. um, letting us know there that she's the stunt woman. You know, it's the <laughs> it's kind of that classic trying to fill in the tropes and trying to let the, the viewers know early on. I think that's one of the stronger traits about, especially the second half and building up the characters. Yeah. You, you go from knowing that the one with the headphones in, she's the goofy one mm-hmm. and she's in a magazine. So she's a model and you know that Zoe Bell's the crazy one and Kim's the, <laughs> she's like the cold logical one. And yeah, uh, the only one that kind of threw me and I was trying to, you know, kind of track, I was like, all right, what are they saying about each of Abernathy? the characters? And yeah. uh, Rosario Dawson was the only mm-hmm. one that kind of escaped my, like by the end, she had, I think, the most development. Yeah. Well, the thing that I love, that's what I love about the diner scene. First of all, it's a, it's a one take, which is kind of amazing for me (laughs) that this was a one take of the camera just moving back and forth which is really cool and it's obviously incredibly reminiscent of reservoir dogs the it's it's their version of the diner scene at the beginning of the movie where we start to get introduced to characters but it also sets everybody up so um we had we learned that uh we learned that the i'm sorry i need to get all the names here in front of me so zoe we learned that her she kind of falls into danger but she always pops back she always pops out of danger no problem she has like a a knack for avoiding danger which is a super foreshadow of her literally popping back up yeah this entire conversation is 100 percent foreshadowing like it lets us know that uh that kim has a gun because we need to know that she has a gun so that she can shoot the guy later this is where we find out that she has a gun rosario abernathy we find out that she has a knack for avoiding danger or seeing danger coming. And when she's in the back of the car, uh, she's the first one to notice that Kurt Russell's character is coming and driving up behind him. So she has the eye to see danger coming. Um, and, and yeah, you know, and we, and we set all that up in stories because um, they're telling the story about when they were, you know, messed up in – what was it Thailand? <laughs> I can't remember the location, but I think it was in Southeast Asia. And, you know, uh, Zoe's trying to make uh, Rosario Dawson's character back up, back up, back up. And then, but right before she sees the danger, she's able to back out of it. Um, but Zoe falls into the pit because she has the bad luck where she falls into danger, but she is able to pop out of it. And then, like I said, we also find out that Kim has a gun and you have to have the gun and it's Chekhov's gun. Once we know she has a gun, we know the gun's going to go off later in the movie. So I, I didn't have any problem with this scene, and I had I was way happier with this scene than I was with the scene at the beginning of the movie and the margaritas and stuff. Um, that whole thing was was 
I don't know. It just it just didn't didn't land with the characters at the beginning of the movie. I was pretty tired of them by the end of the first half. Well, lucky uh, for you, they weren't in the second half. I know, man, but that car crash is brutal. Oh, I forgot about legs come like I remember yeah. it. I just remember it happening, but like the tire on the face. The tire on the face is awful. Is the one where I just yeah. went, ah, oh, I forgot about this, and now I remember why I forgot about it. I did not need to see this. Well, that's the thing about it is, and it was surprising to me as a viewer because I was really bored with all these characters by the time they got in the car and started driving away, and. Uh, but I was still sad w- b- seeing the way that they got mutilated in the car crash. Like it still had an effect on me, you know. S- you know, seeing Jungle Judy and seeing her because she's known for her legs, and her legs were in all of her. Or sorry, Jung- Jungle Julia. Um, you know, seeing all of her billboards where her legs are like in full display, and she's like known for her legs, and then her leg just flies off, and that scene of the leg bouncing off of the pavement is, <laughs> oh man, that is brutal. Um, and then totally, man, the face, like, I had for- totally forgotten about the face getting chewed up. Tired and that is spinning, just still <laughs> going. Yikes-o-rama. Yeah. Can we back up to the, uh, I think what is the scariest scene mm-hmm. in the whole thing when uh, Kurt Russell gives, uh, what's her name, a ride, Rose McGowan. Oh, yeah. And yeah. They, he's like, are yeah, we Rose going McGowan. left and right or right? Yes. And he gives like the, well, there's a 50-50 chance you wouldn't be scared until later down the road. But yeah, time to be scared now. Like, Yeah, I wrote that down because that, that is a bone-chilling line. And that is a line that stands up in the slasher genre as a, as, as a line that is memorable and terrible and really sticks with you um yeah you're you're gonna have to get scared right away and kurt russell I, just crushes it oh he's so good it made me excited for hateful eight yeah because agreed yeah because a lot of people are speculating that in hate the character that he plays in hateful eight was supposed to be played by christoph waltz but christoph waltz is super busy now because quentin tarantino made a world famous <laughs> um and so then instead it went to kurt russell and i i remember kind of scratching my head because Kurt Russell hasn't, you know, done a lot of movies lately. He's he's in this movie, uh, another western, um, Bone. I think it's called Bone Tomahawk. I've which heard I heard about this. Yeah, I really want to see seen it. It's it on, yet it's on video on demand right now. Um, oh god, I just typed it in and it says horror movie Bone Tomahawk contains the most vicious death scene of 2015. I've heard about that from. Uh... I think it was the See You Next Wednesday podcast. They talked. They didn't say what the scene was about, but they said it was the most fucked up scene that they've seen all year, and it made me want to go watch it. But I think it's about cannibals. So yeah, I can it's imagine about they take it there. In the old West. Um. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It is horrifying. <laughs> You're looking they have at a that diagram. Scene? They just have a diagram on MoviePlot.com of the scene. Wow. I'm good. <laughs> I think I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> Are you still anyway, going to go watch it after seeing this diagram? I don't know, man, because it was like it was sold to me as a western, and I love westerns. Western western is my favorite genre. I just eat up westerns. Um, and Bone Tomahawk is a western. You watch the preview; it's very, it's got like the great like we're getting the posse together to go rescue the the, the damsel in distress. Uh, but then I didn't realize it's been it characterized as a horror movie, horror western. I'm not so sure. What about the I'm Revenant? A little bit of a though? whip. What that look? The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio oh, the and Tom Hardy. That looks like a horror western. Well, but it's not. Uh, I don't. It looks. First of all, it doesn't look like a western. It looks like a mountain man movie. Like it looks like it's set in like Canada or something. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That one looks like a little bit more of a survival film. I don't know. I don't have to get into my uh, this creepiness, but God, man, this horror scene looks awful. Uh, <laughs> Google that if you want to see it. Well, um, anyway, you could always go watch Kurt Russell and the Thing. There you go. There's your other. If you want to go well, there, the other end of the horror a, spectrum, the sci-fi. 
Are you a fan of the Escape from New York's uh, series? Yeah, is that you? I'm, it's that like Jesse? that's one of those ones that them. I I hate to love. I uh-huh. really do love. They just something about watching those on TV when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and Kurt Russell just hams it up so hardcore. I mean, he has that a little bit in this where he kind of, whenever he kind of does his look, his quiet look where it's like, oh, there's that snake Pliskin. (laughs) Well, the thing I was getting really strong from him in this movie, and of course I got it from because he does the impersonation, but I was getting a strong John Wayne vibe from him. He does a really good impression. Yeah, like he, and he's got like the swagger. He doesn't look a whole lot like John Wayne because I think he's a lot shorter than John Wayne was, but... He's got like the swagger and he's got the voice and he's got, you know, he's got the screen presence. Um, and it really, this film made me really want to see more of him. So I'm very excited about him and Hateful Eight because he kills it. Like I said, he can wear the dialogue, he can wear the Quentin Tarantino dialogue very, very well. Um, and I, I really do think that it's a type of thing you can either do it or you can't. Like, obviously, Uma Thurman can do it. Um, obviously Samuel L. Jackson could do it. Kurt Russell can do it. Uh, you know, it, it, it takes a certain, it takes a certain type of person to be able to pull it off. And in the beginning of the movie, I just didn't really, I wasn't really feeling it. Um, but I feel like Rosario, Rosario Dawson and her crew, uh, I was feeling it with them, but I wasn't feeling it at the beginning of the movie with the first set. Anyway, let's go ahead. I, I want to go to, we have a, uh, a voicemail that was sent to us, directpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, our good buddy Dennis, who's over in Germany. So he's got a great uh, great accent for everybody out there. He sounds a little bit like Warner Herzog and a little <laughs> bit like Christoph Waltz. Uh, but he sent us in a voicemail, uh, giving us his thoughts uh, about this film so we're going to go ahead and play that now and then we'll chat about it a little bit afterward hey guys it's dennis Kleinbeck from germany um i wanted to offer you some of my thoughts about death proof which is i think the most underrated quentin tarantino movie it's um this unapologetic b film with quentin tarantino riffing on many of the 70s exploitation films by ross meyer jess franco those kinds of people and the thing is, I think it's this really interesting exercise in style and technique, um, especially in the first half. You have him um, kind of riffing on, on this the cheap-ass nature of grindhouse cinema, of exploitation cinema. And he really plays with those ideas about films. You, you could definitely see he knows, those sh- he knows his shit. Um, he knows the films uh, he's... Um, paying homage to with his characters and his style and the kind of story he wants to tell about this maniac stunt driver who needs um, who has this sexual fixation on, on killing women with his death-proof stunt car, which is like one of the craziest exploitation ideas uh, you can imagine. But it's it's in its trashiness it's so sincere with its characters especially in the first half i I have to say the first half is definitely the better one with character with the crew around jungle julia being an interesting set of characters who are introduced in a way that you are immediately interested in their kind of trash talking nature which i think it's it's it's, uh the strength of the film um together with uh, kurt russell who is really a beast in this film and really um, rewatching Death Proof again makes me so excited for um, The Hateful Eight where he plays the lead as it seems in the trailers and the marketing of the film and with Death Proof I think Quentin Tarantino really had this um, really had this uh, peak in his career with Kill Bill and the whole bloody affair he really expressed himself and his creativity in those two films I mean Rewatching it again um, and listening to you guys talk about it, it really becomes apparent that he was so focused on this this grand uh, portrayal of of revenge, and Death Proof really seems like going small and like the smallest film in his whole career, even smaller than than Jackie Brown, and which I would like to compare it to because you have those really small set of characters. Um, 
one linear story and yeah i really think death proof is is underrated in a sense um like jackie brown i think both those the both uh, films uh, don't really get talked about uh, as much as kill bill uh, Django Unchained and uh, Inglorious Bastards and Pulp Fiction and so on. I, those movies are, are legendary status and I think Jackie Brown and um, Death Proof are not really legendary but they are good films in a sense that they surpass, they they are more than average uh, entertainment. Uh, the problem with Death Proof is that the second half needs much to um, needs too much filler to uh, really establish the same kind of mood that the first half has. Uh, everything after the crash feels kind of tacked on, and you you can re really see it in the way the filter shifts from the first half to the second half. The first half is this scrummy um, kind of kind of damaged film. In the second half, you get this clean. Yeah, it really feels much cleaner. And the ending is rushed, and yeah, you have these problems. That's the problem of paying homage to exploitation films. Those are not really the most well-executed films, but they they have something you can cling on to. And in this film, it's um, the, the the characters who are memorable in the moment, not really memorable in the long run, like the like characters like Mia Wallace and um, and the Bride, or every everyone in in Fox Forest Five. Um, now. Um, you know the the crew from Kill Bill, um, so I think we are left with a film who uh, which is more or less an, an afterthought after um, the whole bloody affair of Kill Bill, and I think those the breathing moment, the breathing pause, uh, pause between Kill Bill and the fabulous and excellent Inglorious Bastards, which I. Can't wait to hear you talk about. So th those are my thoughts about Death Proof. Um, really underrated, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, okay, that was me fi five minutes babbling about uh, Death Proof. Uh, have a great cast, and uh, yeah, see you guys next week. Well, thank you, Dennis. And obviously, you're wrong. No, <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Definitely no, I really, the other way. Yeah, he went the other way, and I I really do appreciate that opinion because um, I want to. You know, obviously, this is all very subjective. Uh, and I think that one of the things about the first half of the movie that maybe I don't, uh, I don't latch on to anymore is that, you know, think about slasher movies. Slasher movies are made for like high schoolers, <laughs> right? Cause they all follow that very similar trope of like, these are all, there's like this group of these cool kids, they're partying, they're getting into trouble, you know, they're doing things that their parents don't want them to know about, and then the slasher shows up and kills them all. Well, and, sorry, what are you saying? I was going to say, not to mention, the reason you watch those movies as a, as a young man, as mm -hmm. in your teenage years, is like that <laughs> lap dance scene. And even at 30, I'm right. like, oh, this is all right. I'm okay, <laughs> and it's totally exploitative. It's yeah, super unnecessary, but that's what that's one of the draws for a young male crowd. Yeah, it is, and that's and it and that's a that's a trope. There's always a sexualized scene in these movies as well, so that it falls into that trope. And maybe I've just outgrown the trope. I don't know, but the first half of the movie, I just couldn't latch onto the characters, and I didn't really care about them. The only thing that I felt bad about was that they died in a really terribly gruesome way. <laughs> but, like, you know, like, going outside and having a five-minute conversation about how to make out in the car, uh, stuff like that, I'm I'm not really latching on to that. And I don't feel like it does the things that all dialogue and all movies should do, and that's either establish a character or move the story forward. I didn't feel like that was doing that on any level. Because we already knew that, like, this is a person... You know that character. She doesn't. Uh, you know she's she's not she's not the type of person who does too much on the first date. We already know that like she's she she'll go make out with you in the car for six minutes, but that's all you're getting. They already established that earlier in the film during the opening dialogue sequence in the car. We don't need to reiterate that if it's not going to go anywhere. So, um, so that's just how I felt. I, I and I'm not trying to rail against you, Dennis. I do really, really appreciate you uh, calling in and sharing your opinion with us. I love some of the points um, that Dennis made about Kill Bill and 
this kind of being a nice decompression maybe movie after Kill Bill. Uh, you know, one of my mo- favorite movies of all time is No Country for Old Men. And right after No Country for Old Men, the Coen brothers made Burn After Reading. Burn After Reading, um, you know, ask some people on this podcast network, for instance. I know Aaron <laughs> like, does not like Burn After Reading. But I love that movie because I saw it as a decompression of No Country for Old Men. No Country for Old Men is a pressure cooker of violence and suspense and dread and uh, just a heavy, heavy, heavy movie. And afterward, I could totally see them like kind of opening up and making this comically dark, violent movie that is just as brutal in many respects, but does it with in a tongue-in-cheek way to just kind of decompress. And I did feel like Death Proof might be that for uh, for Kill Bill. How do you think this movie relates to Kill Bill? I think that the one of the really good points that Dennis made, and, mm-hmm. and I'll give him this, the first half is, I think, the better homage. Oh, absolutely. The first half with the, the grain of the film, which... Yeah. Absolutely. You know, feels a little bit cheesy, but, you know, now, and I noticed when we got to the second half of the film, it's like, oh, the film's all cleaned up or, you know, yeah. there's no scratching. I think they said they physically, like, scratched the first half. <laughs> um, you know, the first half, it's the, the darkness of the setting, you know, at the while they were, you know, in the bar, but between the outside, it was dark, you know, especially down the road, the lighting was really restricted. And so... Mm-hmm. I think that made a better a better throwback to thrillers. Although the right. second half is referencing, I think, more the vanishing points, the the dirty Mary, crazy Larry, um, <laughs> those kind of car movies. Yeah, but without kind of that film grain, and so I think well, and, and I think the first half is better between... in that regard, in the style, and that's I think how it relates to Kill Bill. I mean, mm-hmm. think about the opening; it does the freeze the feature presentation, mm-hmm. um, which I think was at the start of the first Kill Bill, yeah, not it the was. second one, but just the first one. Yep. And I think it's the exact yep. same. And then they do the the cut to the frame of Quentin Tarantino's. I think it was Thunderbolt for like yeah, one frame, and then just to the <laughs> the cold text of. Death proof. Um, right. Which is a great homage because in those Grindhouse movies, a lot of them had two names. Or if they were a foreign film coming over from Hong Kong, maybe they were shipped with one name. Or they, had, you know, so it's this idea that a Grindhouse movie could have multiple names. I really like that. That was a great homage. The other one is I think this relates to Kill Bill in concept of, of the death proof car. I think that yeah. Dennis is right in pointing out, and that's. Something I had that I, I always lose track of all the stuff in my notes. I need a system to trace my thoughts. <laughs> um, but the the idea of death proofing a car is yeah. so cool. It's it is super it's sweet. Unique. And when you see the car and you you know, a great movie explains its name. I think, um, <laughs> and to have him be like, well, you give it to a stunt team, and and it's totally insane. Like. Right. There's no way that you can really do that, I think, fully death proof yep. a car, but um yep. but the skull on the hood and that mm-hmm. that uh hood ornament the yep. the duck, the rubber duck which never gets explained. <laughs> well, apparently that's a direct homage to the movie Convoy, which was a 70s film. They have the exact same hood ornament in that film. Um but this movie is filled with those kinds of things. If you want to go down the robot rabbit hole just Type in death proof references. Like everybody's t shirt is a reference to a movie. <laughs> the posters in the film, the you know, the hood ornament, of course. They're all references. They this thing is loaded to the brim with these things. So if you want to get to that second level and enjoy the movie um, through those references, just check it out. There, literally, there's too many references to go through on the podcast. I don't think it'd be interesting podcast. I can tell you so. that if you're looking to watch one of the movies referenced I went afterwards I was I had time to kill and I was like oh I wonder if I wasn't sure I wanted to watch Planet Terror especially second um mm-hmm. 
but one of the movies that they kept referencing was the Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, and I had never seen that. So I went, that's on Netflix streaming right now, and you can watch that. And it's an old cool. Peter Fonda film where he ends up racing a, a chartreuse, I think it was a Mustang. Um, it's really good. It's just a classic, <laughs> goofy 60s or 70s What's it film. called? It's Dirty Mary Crazy Larry. Dirty Mary Crazy Larry. It's got Peter Fonda and Susan George, who's hot in a really weird way. <laughs> oh, that's the best kind of hot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, oh, yep, that and that's true. So that movie, because it, it kind of sprung a, a reference in my own mind, that movie was also a movie that was on TV being watched in Jackie Brown. Oh, was, that's yeah. right, because Fonda's yeah. daughter was in Jackie Brown. Yep, Bridget Fonda was in Jackie Brown. What do you think about I, Dennis's pointing out that you know that this relates just as much to Jackie Brown as it does any other Tarantino, even though Jackie Brown is not one he wrote? Yeah, I like that a lot, just in terms of comparing it, because those are the two movies, these are the two Tarantino films that are most overlooked. I think if you're talking to a casual movie fan, they may not know that Jackie Brown and Death Proof are Quentin Tarantino movies. They sure. probably definitely know that Kill Bill is one, or uh, Pulp Fiction, of course, or Reservoir Dogs. But th- these are definitely the two lowest, uh, most least known um, Tarantino films. And I did like the the connection there that these are also both shot linearly, linearly. So. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting because it it goes against the trope that everybody thinks of when they think of Tarantino films, in that they're shot, uh, everything is you know mumbo jumbo and switched around. But these two films are shot straightforward linear, linearly, and they're also the two least well received Tarantino films, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I like that. What what did you did you have any th- thoughts about that? No, the, the, the linear connection? thing is really strong to me. I think that it's. Mm-hmm. I think that they both uh, reference exploitation films more. I think Kill Bill references yeah. a lot of foreign films, but not necessarily, and some exploitation. But these two are yeah. really set in that, in the black exploitation mm-hmm. um, from that, and the grind house. And right. So, and I think that it's, you know, I think that the the relations might stop there. I think that this is still. Yeah that mashup uh style that he's no that he's best at his ability to yeah. mix stuff you know the fact it, the fact that it goes from a, a slasher to a, a a car movie by the end uh yeah and then the the female revenge at the very end i think that that's my kurt russell just from the <laughs> from his kind of insane attitude and getting off to when he runs the girls off the road and he laughs right up until the moment he gets shot. Yeah. And then he just turns into the most miserable creature. Yeah, just a whimpering dog in the car. And you don't feel bad for him at all because oh, he's an asshole. Not in the least. It is yeah. so satisfying when those girls yeah. beat the hell out of him. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I, the thing is, like, I remember watching this in the theater and I remember watching that final scene when they're kicking his ass and loving it. And this time it felt a little bit flat for me. Um, and I think that the reason why is because we as the audience know that this guy is basically a serial killer slasher. So we know how evil and how terrible he is. Now, what he did to these women was awful. And especially, you know, threatening Zoe's life because she was on the hood of the car. It's all terrible. But then for these women to be like, all right, now we're going to go literally murder this guy. Is a little bit of a stretch for me. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know if, and you know, maybe it's because I'm trying to see this from a way too realistic standpoint. This is a grindhouse movie, and I need to look at it through that lens. But we are once again in the Quentin Tarantino world where cops don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do, like, but they don't care as long as it doesn't happen again in Texas. Right. Exactly. Those are the only police officers that show up. But yeah, like they, there's like multiple car accident on the interstate, and then these women murder these guys with murder this guy with their bare hands. Like, how are they going to explain that away? So, and I understand 
I understand that we're supposed to root for these people. I understand that Stuntman Mike is a bad guy and that what he did in trying to murder these ladies is also equally terrible. But it once again goes back to this vengeance thing, which has been a resonating uh, resonating story throughout Tarantino's work. I think revenge is a very big part of it. We have revenge in Reservoir Dogs when Mr. White kills Mr. Orange at the end of the film. We have revenge in... Uh, Pulp Fiction, when we're talking about the whole Zed's Dead plot, uh, you know, going back and, and enacting revenge on the guys in the pawn shop. We have revenge on uh, on uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character and Jackie Brown at the end of the movie. He gets killed instead of taken into custody. Obviously, Kill Bill's all about revenge, uh, and Death Proof is all about revenge as well, and we're, we're playing out these cinematic revenge fantasies. I get it. It's just on the second watch. I didn't feel the turn when these women's when these women decide that they're now going to become vengeful murderers in that in this case. Do you that, think that, that turn didn't land with me? Do you think that Tarantino is like there's somebody out there he really wants to get? <laughs> I don't know. Well, revenge is a great it's a great cinematic device. It's a great storytelling device. Well, and it's, it's a very it's a very easy way to get people on board with it with a heroic character and then follow them on their journey. Well, and I think it's one that easily relatable to one of the things that i always think is like if you look at uh dirty harry the first dirty harry where the villain is essentially the zodiac killer i always look at that as a revenge film that was written for you know san francisco to kind of get over what had happened because they didn't catch him in real life but damn it in the movie dirty harry gets him and kicks his ass yep um and so I always I think that there's generally it's most powerful when there's when there's something to it and he just keeps writing revenge films so I wonder if <laughs> if he's got something deep down that he's just a grudge that he's just it, I mean it's a, it's a common thread we're looking ahead here and Glorious Bastards also a revenge film because it's about a Jewish unit that goes revenge, and kills yeah. Nazis and then uh, and then Django Chain also a, a very big revenge story. Uh, because he goes back to Candyland and and spoiler alert, uh, destroys Candyland, kills just about everybody, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I remember correctly, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, revenge is a big part of of Tarantino. I think we got to put that in the Tarantinoism box. That if you want to, uh, if you want to have a Tarantino esque experience, then you're going to have to have. Some element of revenge in the story. And more prevalent, really, than his uh, ability to tell a nonlinear story. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, I would love to go through all of the Tarantino references in this film. <laughs> the self-referential Tarantino references. The phone ring with the whistle. There's a boatload of them. There's a boatload of them. There's so many. I, and I love it because this is something that you really get when you watch all of these movies week by week. And podcast about them. These things land with you, and they're very exciting. His jukebox, so first of all, which is his jukebox, apparently, in real oh, life, that he had shipped down there. Very nice. Um, well, and and so the sheriff was the same sheriff from Kill Bill. Uh, that was the uh, the same the same sheriff and the same sheriff's. That's his. <laughs> that's his real son in yeah, real life. I read that. Um, and yeah, I, I do have to make a, what is it? A retraction or a correction from last week's podcast. (laughs) So Michael Parks plays Esteban and he plays the sheriff. You told me that in the last podcast and I completely glazed over it. (laughs) Michael Parks, he plays the sheriff at Kill Bill. He plays Esteban at the end of Kill Bill volume two. And he's the sheriff in this movie. Um, and his, his son, James Parks is, is the, is in the movie as well. So that's a reference. Um, I think they're I also the, in uh, From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. As the sheriffs. They're just this yeah. weird <laughs> they're just the universe sheriff. They've seen a lot of shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> and totally unfazed. Yeah, I know. Well, they got all the sunglasses. Well, That's all they need. Sun number one. <laughs> uh, the other thing uh, is, uh, and if you watch the Grindhouse movies, this you, you would get this, but the hospital that they go to and the nurses at the hospital... Uh, they're in Planet Terror, which is you know that connects these two films together because the hospital is is the common environment in the two two films. Um, but other things, so yeah, there's the whistle on the cell phone, which is from Kill Bill. 
But also, I don't know if you noticed this, but the Mustang Mach 1 that is driven by Kim is the is like Pussy Wagon 2.0. <laughs> it, it literally has, it says Pussy Wagon on the back of the car. I don't think I saw that. Yeah. So on the back of the car, uh, it says Mustang on one side, you know, because it's a Mustang. Yeah. And then on the other side, there's like a smaller, like bumper sticker size logo that is the Pussy Wagon. Oh, jeez. And it's yellow, <laughs> and the inside's pink. It is, it's Pussy Wagon 2.0, which I think is super cool. Um, yeah, I, 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 and I just love how, like, I, like you know, call back to the diner scene. In this scene, we don't get a trunk scene in this movie, but we do get a hood scene instead. I'm surprised so we, we still... don't get it. Like, they didn't throw Kurt Russell in the trunk and <laughs> torture well, they him did, a little bit more. You know, they did the hood scene, which is basically the same shot. So I'm I'm still gonna give it to him on this one. Um, How much do you want to do a ship's mast? Do you have any interest in actually no, trying that? Zero, zero. Oh man, I so want to like give it a shot. <laughs> okay. Well, I in my life I was in a little bit of a horrific car accident in a very similar landscape oh, to the final right. car uh, crash. That. So the whole time I was kind of clenching. I was <laughs> like, this is a little too close to home, guys. Uh, yeah. I think in another but, life I could have been a stuntman. Wow. More power to you, buddy. Um, uh, one other thing I want to talk about, which I really liked, because this movie is set in the time and place. So a couple things that I loved was like the cell phone, how she had to text by like pressing the buttons three times. I was like, yeah, I've been there. I've done that before. And with the like, filter on the film, it looks, it made me feel like i was looking like oh you remember the 90s as if it was 40 years ago this isn't the 90s this is like 2007 and that's legitimate like the the iphone i think the iphone came out in 2008 like before then you used to have to press buttons to text you have to press three three times to get like a f (laughs) that's a good point but it just it it made it feel so like just something about it Made it feel so disassociated from my own lifespan. <laughs> really? It seemed a faint memory happening. Because I do. I remember doing that too, but I just, <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, dude, when I was in college, when I was in college, that was what you had to do. Like, uh, my freshman year of college, I had this crappy flip phone where you had to, like, beep, 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 like, to text. And uh, I love how there was, like, typos in there and stuff because I was, like, the same. The same deal. So I love that it's set in the time period. And this is the last Quentin Tarantino movie that's actually set in the time period of the day that it's released. Because uh, we go to World War II and then we go to the 1800s with the next two films. So um, I, I really liked that part. And then the other part that I really, really enjoyed was when uh, Mike the Stuntman is walking out to his car with Rose McGowan's character. And they're talking about stunt driving or whatever. And she basically says, you know, he's like, how do you think they, they do all those car, uh, car crashes? And she's like, I don't know, CGI. (laughs) And he's like, well, darling today, uh, you know, that that's more, (laughs) more often than not. And it really is, man. And that's something that's in this movie that you have to appreciate is it's all practical effects. Yeah, I watched an interview with Rose McGowan talking about being, like, banged around inside the car up against the plexiglass. (laughs) They put her through a lot. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. But but it is, man. Like, I miss the days. I miss the days of practical effects because there's something to be said about action scenes that are shot for reals. And the only person in the world right now who seems to have the devotion to that mindset is Tom Cruise. And that's one of the reasons I think that the Mission Impossible movies have been so successful because he does this shit for real. Like in the most recent one, he strapped himself to the side of a plane and had it take off. And now he did that for real. Like that's amazing. Like people want to see that. If only that wasn't the best 30 seconds in that film. Well, I didn't see it, but you know, he had like the Dubai thing where he like, he repelled on yeah. the, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. And that's because he you know, he was the, the 80s and 90s action star, too. Like, in Top Gun, they used real planes that, that entire movie. That makes the movie feel so much more real, and it makes it so much awesome, so much more awesome. 
Like, I'm not excited for Top... Because they are making Top Gun 2, by the way. I'm not excited for that movie if it's all CGI planes. Like, the, they've already made that movie. It's called Stealth. It's awful. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I forgot that that was a movie until just now. <laughs> but, you know, like, get real... Like, I want to see real stuff. Like, and Tom Cruise was in... Uh, was it? It's not Thunder Alley. Days of Thunder. Like, you know, and they use real cars. Like, there's something to be said about using real practical effects. It makes it so much more interesting as a viewer to me because we have been we have been whitewashed with CGI. And at this point, I'm just blind to it. Like, I could, you know, you watch The Avengers 2 and you're like, okay, this entire second half of the movie is all CGI. <laughs> like, well, and that's what I'm hanging a lot of my real. hat on for the next Star Wars is J.J. Uh-huh. Abrams has a yeah. real respect for practical effects. Absolutely, man. And like, we didn't talk about, obviously we didn't talk about Planet Terror, but one of the things in that is practical makeup. I love practical makeup. Like, give me an alien that is a, like a bunch of rubber on a dude's face, and I would like that a lot better than a CGI guy. Than aliens and, versus predator. Know. Well, and at this point, like my like my pipe dream for Gar- we are getting way down the rabbit hole here, but my pipe dream for Guardians of the Galaxy when they announced that movie and and uh, and you know talking about Rocket Raccoon, I was like, okay, so Disney owns Marvel. Disney also owns Jim Henson Studios, and like puppeteering has become like I'm sure the technology of puppeteering has advanced like so far, but nobody wants to use puppets anymore in movies. I was like, it would be so cool if Rocket Raccoon was like some super advanced Jim Henson puppet. That would make me really excited. But maybe that's just me, you know, being the child of the of the '90s that I was, and maybe I'm maybe I'm a relic, and I'm not the not the target audience for that. But I I love practical effects, man. There's definitely something to be said for it. Well, and I mean, Alien didn't need a CGI alien. Say what? Alien didn't need a CGI alien really or a CGI didn't. spaceship, for that matter. It didn't need more than one alien. <laughs> one alien is the scariest <laughs> exactly. alien. I really wonder about that. Like, if Star Wars, uh, you know, A New Hope came out today, would Chewbacca be really cheesy? Because it's obviously a dude in a suit. But I've never thought of Chewbacca as cheesy. Yeah, well, you know, I think it brings up a conversation about what you're willing to, the willful suspension of disbelief. I think one of the big things that you can take away from Death Proof is that, for whatever reason, the audience just didn't give Tarantino the leeway they typically give him. There's a lot of things in this that are really no different from his other films. The long bits of dialogue... (laughs) Um, yep. his his kind of his meandering that occurs in his attempt to like really build a realistic character. I don't know that the movie is that different from his others, but for whatever reason, yeah, people just didn't give him as much slack on this one. Hmm. I yeah, think. and and well, and and they didn't need to because it's obviously supposed to be. I feel like it was supposed to be his worst movie. Like, like intentionally, <laughs> he was like, yeah, this exactly. one, it's, I'm going to half-ass, get it out well, of the way. Well, it's not that he was going to half-ass, but he was like, I can do whatever the hell I want on this because it's a grindhouse movie. It's a double feature. It's supposed to be campy. It's supposed to be gory. It's supposed to be, you know, it, you know, they call attention to things like the shots and the editing in ways that films don't usually do. Like, he could do whatever the hell he wanted with it because it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be bad in some ways. It's supposed to be so bad it's good. This is this is Tarantino's so bad it's good movie. So you, I, I want to give him, uh, you know, leeway on that because uh, I, I, I don't want to be too hard on this film. It's not, it's not a film that's supposed to be, you know, taken incredibly seriously. Yeah, and I think, I think that occurs. I think that's, yeah, I think that wraps into what we're talking about with aliens and everything else. I think there's mm-hmm. an intent and. Mm-hmm whether or not you as an audience go along with it, it, and some of it maybe is the director Tarantino. I don't know that he necessarily cares what you think. <laughs> he does. Whereas someone like, uh, the, the, why can't I think of star Wars director? Uh, his name's George Lucas, George Lucas. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you look at how the 
the prequels went. Like, yeah. he took it very personally that the audience did not like those. And he's been acting like a small child <laughs> lately about <laughs> it. <laughs> Everything I've heard from him. Yeah, that's kind of the great thing is the confidence, right? And that and that's with anything is that you have to respect the confidence with which this movie was made, and you have to respect the confidence with which Tarantino makes his movies. It, you know, we say it time and time again, but I really do feel this way. I feel like great directors make movies for themselves, and they're able to do it in such a true way that it resonates with audiences. And Tarantino is that guy. I do want to just touch on one thing before we end here. Uh, and that's that's with with the character of Lee, the actress. What the hell? Why did they leave her on the farm with that guy? I have in my notes, these are the worst friends ever. Worst friends ever? What the fuck? She... Not to mention, yeah, like that's the guy from Kill Bill at the beginning <laughs> of the movie. And there's no reason to think that he's not the same person that's in Kill Bill because the sheriff is the same sheriff from Kill Bill. I'm just saying, this is an awful, awful situation. What the hell were they thinking? Yeah, I don't know. No, that was some bullshit. <laughs> That's not a practical joke, guys. What the hell? And she like wakes up as they're pulling. Also, why was she sleeping? Because they'd been awake all night. They imply that at the beginning of the movie, well, they'd been up all yeah, night. That's why they need the Still. large coffee. and the. Yeah, I was not cool with that. <laughs> anyway... Uh, so that's, that's Grindhouse. Uh, ultimately, like I said, I don't think we should be too hard on this movie because I don't think we, I don't think we should take this movie very seriously because the movie doesn't take itself seriously. We should take this movie as seriously as it takes itself. Good call. I agree. That's my eloquent way of saying that this podcast is over, but next week it's Inglorious Bastards time. So please folks go to the forums, forums forums.ballmove.com. Uh, once again, that's forums.baldmove.com. Go there. Go to the official direct thread for Inglorious Bastards, and we'll be talking about it next week. Until then, I'm Eric. I'm Stuntman Levi. <laughs> Cuts. <laughs>